I accept your nomination for President of the United States. And that may not even be the biggest news today. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and on many other fine terrestrial stations. Plus, streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Well, normally, you might be able to guess what would be our top story today, that the nomination of Hillary Clinton by the Democrats as the first female nominee from a major political party in these United States as happened on Thursday night at the Wells Fargo Arena in Philadelphia. Obviously, that's a huge story, and we will be talking about that huge story shortly uh, with our old friend Heather Digby Parton of Salon as she joins us to wrap up the week uh, from, uh, from the Democrats' convention in Philadelphia, as she did last week with the Republicans' dystopian hellscape convention in Cleveland, as she called it. Uh, But we've got what I think may be even a bigger story, a bigger, more important story in many ways uh, that is just breaking within the last uh, couple of hours here as we go to air and as I'm trying to make sense of it. And before I do, let me say hi to Hillary uh, to Hillary. I almost (laughs) called you Hillary Clinton. Let me say hi to uh, Desi Doyen. Hi. Hi. All right. Um, and and does help me out here if I'm being unclear with any of this, because this is huge. We've been talking for years on this program, uh, more than a decade at Bradblog.com about uh, voting rights, voting concerns, electronic voting systems, and uh, specifically when it comes to voter suppression, the Republican laws, the photo ID voting restriction laws that have been passed around the country Following, it was really the attempt after 2004 uh, by Republicans to start putting these uh, type of restrictive laws in place, but it didn't take off until in full until the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, and which allowed a lot of these Republican states that would have had to get federal preclearance for these laws previously to now just start putting these laws in place, no matter what the cost, no matter how uh, restrictive they are, no matter how discriminatory they are, 
to certain groups, certain groups that tend to vote Democratic. Um, so, uh, you know, students, minorities, the elderly, the elderly and so forth. So we've talked a lot about the photo ID restrictions. Last week, we had a huge ruling from the appellate court, the most conservative appellate court in the country, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court down in Texas, which uh, found, in fact, that Texas's photo ID restriction uh, was, in fact, in violation of the Voting Rights Act. That law was remanded, was sent back to the lower courts to try to find a fix to basically say, uh, hey, maybe you can let people sign an affidavit if they don't have the specific, narrow, strict type of photo ID that y'all are now requiring uh, to vote. They can sign an affidavit, an affidavit saying, this is why I uh, don't have an ID. And make sure that everyone can vote. That's what the very conservative Fifth Circuit Court did in Texas, cutting the knees out uh, in many ways from under that Texas law. That was the good news last week. This week's voting rights news is even better. The fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has now struck down all of the very worst provisions of North Carolina's voter suppression law, which we had originally described after it was enacted just days after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act back in 2013. Uh, I described it at bradblog.com as the nation's most restrictive voter suppression law, as the worst voter suppression law since the Jim Crow era. Others have described that law as the mother of all voter suppression laws because it uh, not only put those photo ID restrictions in place, but it also gutted. It did just about every voter suppression scheme that Republicans have uh, have been doing over the past few years. It did all of them in a single law. It restricted early voting. It ended same day registration. It ended early registration, allowing 16 and 17 year olds to register uh, if, in fact, they would be 18 by the time of the next election. Uh, it uh, it it stopped out of precinct votes from being counted. So if you went to the wrong precinct and you had to count a uh, had to cast a provisional ballot, that ballot would not be counted under this law. It was a huge law, just one thing after another. Well, now the fourth U.S. Circuit Court has struck down all of those provisions finding that they were passed by those Republicans in North Carolina with a racially discriminatory intent. In its 83-page decision, the court found that North Carolina uh, purposely enacted this law with the intent to discriminate against uh, racial minorities. And uh, the Fourth Circuit held that this law actually targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Wow. This is a huge, uh, a huge victory for voting rights uh, coming on the heels, particularly of what we saw in Texas uh, in, the, in the Fifth Circuit Court and also up in Wisconsin, which also uh, sent back uh, that state's Republican photo ID restriction law. Uh, saying that it, it has to have some sort of a remedy if you don't have a photo ID, some sort of a remedy that would allow you to vote, uh, like signing an affidavit. It can still cause trouble and confusion, but that was certainly good news in Wisconsin and in Texas. This news in North Carolina is even better. Um, what the court found was that uh, after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 
Uh, the, the North Carolina promptly, quote, requested data on the use by race of a number of voting practices. And upon receipt of the race data, the General Assembly in North Carolina enacted legislation that restricted voting and registration in five different ways, all of which disproportionately affected black voters. For example, as uh, Slate describes in its coverage, counties with Sunday voting in 2014 were disproportionately black and disproportionately Democratic, as the legislature discovered. So in response, the legislature did away with one of the two uh, days of Sunday voting before the election. The Fourth Circuit writes that this is, quote, as close to a smoking gun as we are likely to see in modern times. That Sunday voting, that's considered souls to the polls day uh, for many African-Americans around the country where they go to church on Sunday and then everyone, you know, get, gets goes together, together, goes yeah. together to vote. Uh, and so specifically those Sunday early voting days, at least one of the two, was gutted by the North Carolina legislature. There was no other reason for to do this. The court found the appellate court found other than to be able to uh, keep, uh, you know, disproportionately Democratic and disproportionately black voters from being able to vote. The court went on to say the state's very justification for a challenged statute hinges explicitly on race. In other words, uh, the, the statutes that were challenged as part of this law, the state said, well, you know, uh, it's fine. We're just doing it to protect against voter fraud. But they said, but the court said the state's very justification for a challenge statute hinges explicitly on race, specifically its concern that African-Americans who had overwhelmingly voted for Democrats had too much access to the franchise. The legislature's racial data demonstrated that, as the district court found, quote, it is indisputable that African-American voters disproportionately used same-day registration when it was available. In-person assistance likely would disproportion, uh, disproportionately benefit African-Americans, eliminated same-day registration, and so on and so forth. The court called it uh, seemingly irrational restrictions unrelated to the goal of combating fraud which uh, indeed neither the uh, this legislature nor, as far as we can tell, any other legislature in the country has ever done so, so much, so fast to restrict access to the franchise. Wow. OK, so I know we're running out of time. Yeah. Quickly, what happens next? Will this be appealed to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme well, Court? Well, uh, this was a three-judge uh, three panel of the Fourth District Court. So there's a couple of options here, none of them very good, frankly, for the Republicans in this case, for the anti-voting uh, forces. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they could ask for an on-bank, which means a full court hearing of this. Experts who I've uh, seen so far in just the past hour or two say those options are not very good on the Fourth Circuit Court. Let's see. Uh, Slate writes that to Friday's decision was issued by a three-judge panel. If North Carolina requests a rehearing by the full court, it will almost certainly lose again. This according to Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate. Um, because he says the Fourth Circuit Court is currently left-leaning. He says, moreover, there is simply no chance that the state can gather five votes on our current Supreme Court to reverse Friday's ruling. So if it ties with our uh, eight-person court, court right yes. now, it would tie at best 
I should say at, at, at worst, it would likely tie four to four, in which case the lower court, the U.S. appellate court, the fourth district court, their ruling would hold. OK, again, moving on quickly. So in the past, some uh, the Supreme Court has said, oh, you have to be what is it? The Purcell doctrine where you have to not change the election laws too close too to an close election because right. it's too confusing. Right. Is that something that this will hold or at that 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 folks in North Carolina with this ruling will still not be able they to They can try to make a play for that, as I understand. They can go to the Supreme Court. They can say, hey, yeah, our, our law was found to be purposely uh, racially discriminatory. However, to change it this late in the game to make these changes before the November election. It's just too close to the election to do that. They would have to get the U.S. Supreme Court to agree. Okay. And it seems to me the U.S. Supreme Court, again, at best, would probably split on that four to four, in which case the Fourth Circuit decision to nix this law, to nix these provisions. Mind you, they're not sending them back down to a lower court. They Once they discovered there was a racially discriminatory intent they said, that's it. Enough is enough. This law has got to go away. And they looked at what the, uh, the, the record of the lower court and they said, yeah, the lower court, which had upheld this law, the lower court correctly looked at all of the data. However, that lower court, the decision by that judge was erroneous, that the judge simply got it wrong. Wow. And. That's going to be very hard to go anywhere with. And by the way, it's hard to get a finding that the judge determined it just, you know, determined the facts wrong. It's hard to get that finding from an appellate court. But the voting rights advocates here, including the U.S. Department of Justice, which was suing on this law, uh, you know, they got what they were were looking for. And it's very hard to get that from an appellate court. And yet they did. This is a very good and a very big day because this is going to have an effect on all of these laws all around the country. So while it's important to North Carolina, which is a swing state, it went very narrowly for Barack Obama in 2008. It swung back to Mitt Romney in 2012. So this is key there in the presidential race and all of the other uh, contests on the ballot as well. But uh, it seems like this may be the end. This may be the uh, the end of these photo ID restriction laws and all of these other laws that Republicans have been pretending are about stopping fraud. The Fourth Circuit Court saw right through that to a lesser extent. The Fifth Circuit Court down in Texas saw right through that. Uh, I just can't overstate what good news this is for voters, frankly, of any party. If you just give a damn about voting the good news that is uh, represented in this uh, Fourth Circuit Court ruling today. We will be talking about it more, no doubt, in the near future. Uh, but hey, enjoy that uh, and enjoy a quick break. When we uh, come back, we will talk about what we thought was going to be the big story today, the nomination of Hillary Clinton for president of these United States. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by Bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. 
Let our legacy be about planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. That's why we're here, not just in this hall, but on this earth. The founders showed us that, and so have many others since. They were drawn together by love of country and the selfless passion to build something better for all who follow. That is the story of America, and we begin a new chapter tonight. There you have it. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. Uh, that was a uh, that was a, a nice, optimistic uh, bumper there, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. I made it because I felt like, hey, this is historic, and I would like to pause for a moment before we get into all the complaining and all that about yeah, this historic. Wh- what moment. makes you think we're going to complain about <laughs> this historic moment? L- let's. Uh, so, well, let's. I- I'm going to try. I'm doing my best. We had that very good news out of North Carolina today concerning voting rights. So suddenly I'm feeling a lot better than I was after the uh, convention wrapped up on Thursday night. But let's, you're right, let's take a moment to uh, mark this historical moment before we get to our guest. Uh, this is what happened, uh, in case you didn't hear, on Thursday night at the Wells Fargo Arena in Philadelphia. And so, my friends, it is with humility, determination, and boundless confidence in America's promise that I accept your nomination for President of the United States. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Hillary Clinton, the first female to be nominated for a major American, major U.S. political party in this nation's, what, 250-something-odd uh, year history. So it is with... Humility and determination and optimism that I welcome our guest to uh, help us make sense of all of this today. Heather Digby Parton, our old friend, is back once again. We had her back last week after the uh, uh, Republican convention. Now we'll make sense maybe of the Democratic convention. She is known, of course, simply as Digby to many longtime progressive blog readers online. Heather Digby Parton is the creator of the infamous Digby's Hullabaloo blog and a regular contributor at Salon.com and the Hillman Prize winner for opinion and analysis journalism. We'll get some of that uh, prize winning opinion right now, I suspect. Heather Digby Parton, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. Thank you, as usual, for uh, being had. It's always good to have you here. This is uh, obviously an historic moment. So before I you know, begin bitching and complaining, as I probably do, not just uh, today, but for the next 100 days until the election, and then God knows how many days after that, I want to take a moment to uh, to ponder the moment. In fact, we've got the first female candidate from a major American political party. So, and I've got uh, uh, two fantastic women here: Heather Digby Parton and Desi Digby Doyen. And <laughs> so, with that in mind, I'll I'll turn this over to you. Uh, first off, Heather, what did you think of Hillary's white pantsuit? And what about not wearing a flag pin? <laughs> well, the. <laughs> The flag pin was just a horrific. Obviously, she hates America. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But we knew that, right? I mean, that goes without saying. Yes. The white pantsuit actually has a big significance. Really? Well, because I, I ask as a joke, because a lot of people did focus on, you know, how does she look? I know, how does her, and hair? her hair and her voice and all the usual crapola. In fact, 
it got to the point. I just turned off Twitter last night. I, yeah. I'm just going, you know, I don't need any more of this. After listening to, to men, mm-hmm. you know, offend me with their screaming in my face like there's, you know, the dad who's always mad for decades, in fact, my whole life, I, I'm just not hearing any more criticism about her voice, at least not last night. Um, I just was not in the mood for it. And uh, I did want to mention, though, the white pantsuit yeah. has a significance. What is because, it? Because, well, first of all, you may remember, you know, Geraldine Ferraro also wore white, and there's a reason for it, because the suffragettes, suffragists, as we are calling them these days, um, were all wore white. It was a sign of their, it was kind of their uniform, their sign of solidarity. So her, both Ferraro and Clinton both were referring back to that movement, which gave women the right to vote, um, which I think is a very nice thing to do. Um, And, uh, you know, it was meaningful to me knowing that, um, that, that that was part of her calculation to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, you know, if you'll allow um, perhaps Debsy and I to, you know, have a few moments of, mm-hmm. of joy in this, okay. in, this, uh, Absolutely. In, this, in this moment, uh, regardless of what you think about, you know, Clinton's politics or anything else, you know, the fact this is a, a major moment in American history and uh, one that I think she has from her entire life, you know, going back to the time when she was a young woman, in college and becoming politically active, I mean, I just don't think there's any doubt that she has been um, a contributor to public life in America, doing public service, working hard at it, finding various ways throughout the meanderings of her life, which were very interesting and kind of uh, sort of uh, emblematic of the women of her age group and mm-hmm. how they were negotiating all this new stuff with the feminist movement and new opportunities for women in the workplace and how they work their way through it to find she comes up at this point in her life at this age, and she is now the Democratic nominee. And, you know, I, ha- I can't help but take a little pride in it and feel like it's, um, you know, I think I may have said this to you guys before, I can't remember, but, you know, the Democratic Party, for all of its flaws, and God knows <laughs> it has many, <laughs> one of the things they do and have done uh, is when the opportunity presents itself to make a big change like this, a big symbolic change, mm-hmm. it's very difficult. You know, you've got to be in a, there's a particular political moment that presents itself to allow something like this to happen. I think it happened in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, and it's happening now. And they take advantage of it. And it's not, that is not necessarily the smart political move, right? I mean, the smart political move in both 2008 and 2000 would have been to elect an average white guy, because, you know, even though you, you knew you were in a, in a good position to win the election because the other side was, you know, in, in <laughs> desperate trouble, they were in 08 and they are again because of, because of Trump, um, and yet they chose, you know, somehow collectively, subliminally, whatever, was to take that opportunity to do something like this. So I, I give Democrats credit for that. They are willing to expend political capital to make a big symbolic change like mm. this. And I, I think that's I think that's to their, you know, slash our credit that we you know, that that happens. And so another big milestone has just been passed. Oh, I totally agree. The, uh, you know, no matter what you feel uh, personally about Hillary Clinton as a person or about her politics or about what she's done and where she's been, she has, I think, been a transformational character, at least in American history. You know, first as a first lady, like like uh, Heather said, you know, sort of breaking through these uh, preconceived notions about how women are supposed to act. And, you know, we continue to break through those. You know, we'll continue to, to find out 
you know, hey, this is what it's like when a woman speaks with authority. This is what it's like when a woman has a an opinion and doesn't get shouted down. And I love the fact that children now take for granted the idea that a woman can be president. And it's 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 easy for a moment like this to be lost. But for those of us who grew up, uh, you know, my, my mom was a, was a barrier breaker herself as a, the first female engineer to be employed at her company. Um, and I so I saw firsthand a lot of the discrimination and the uh, the barriers for women. And I know as a kid, I never thought that I was going to ever be able to ha- even think about having a position like this. So I'm very happy to see this has happened. I was trying to f- to, to make sense of it while watching the, uh, the speech on Thursday night uh, and not being as moved as I was uh, in in 2008 when with the Barack Obama's acceptance speech when I, I remember weeping at just at the moment uh, you know of what was going on and I was trying to figure out while watching Hillary's speech how much of that had to do with well back in 2008 you had of course an African American nominated for the first time but how much of uh, my feeling at that point was because of that versus the end of the Bush era, which also <laughs> no, really, I mean that yeah. felt no, like such a, a an uplifting moment that oh my God, after those eight dark years, we are finally moving out of that. Uh, and I wonder if I might have been more moved by a Hillary Clinton nomination back then than I was. Uh, eight years later, uh, and I'm also trying to figure out, well, how much of that had to do with the immediate comparison the night before with uh, Barack Obama giving what was, I think, to Republicans and Democrats and independents alike, just one of the most momentous uh, speeches in history at an event like this, uh, his, his speech the night before. So she had to sort of compete with that. And then I'm trying to figure out maybe I'm just not as appreciative, whether I like to admit it or not, of uh, the momentousness of a woman finally being nominated by a major political uh, American party. I don't I, I don't know. And that's what I've been trying to check. That's what I've been trying to figure out. So, Heather, I mean, did it strike you? You've noted the historic milestone, but was it something on a personal level where you moved the way uh, the way that Desi says she was uh, was moved by uh, last night's speech? Yeah, I was. Um, I was. And I uh, I you know, this is uh, it. There's an intense, you know, personal aspect of this. I mean, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm not quite as old as Hillary, but I'm no spring chicken. And I've been through (laughs) a lot of this stuff. Uh, in my former career, uh, I've dealt with this, you know, the, the kind of barriers that were put up, you know, have been put up in American life for women. Uh, I've watched Hillary go through what she's gone through in a number of different ways, I think, many women, particularly maybe women of my age, you know, the middle-aged type women who, you know, can kind of relate to a lot of the, the way that she was sort of dealt over the course of her life. So there is a personal aspect to this. But there was something else, I think, last night that was really meaningful to me, which was that, you know, I think, and I don't think this is, uh, she broke a barrier, but she won't be the last one to do this. But I think it was important that it be a woman of a certain level of maturity and experience that did this thing. Because she stood up there, and I think she looked, for the first time in history, a woman looked absolutely presidential. I don't Mm. think there was any sense that she was not a leader, that she wasn't confident, that she didn't have tremendous backbone, empathy, all the usual things that you think about 
when you, you know, sort of want a leader. Now, whether or not you like her personally or have some issues about her, her, you know, her politics or whatever the things are that you name Brad, and I suspect it's all a combination of those things. We've known her for a long time, mm-hmm. so, you know, people's, there's a, <laughs> people have their feelings about her, and it comes from any number of directions. But nonetheless, nobody looked at her and went, I don't think, I, except for Donald Trump, looked at her and went, that's not a president. Mm. That doesn't look like a president. That doesn't look like a leader. And that's really meaningful. I mean, that's one of those symbolic moments where I think, you know, you, st- you saw this woman of, of hard-won experience, very intelligent, very competent, very capable. That is the baseline now. You know, that's, that, it, it, women can be seen that way. Regardless now, you know, beyond that, they have to prove themselves, you know, in the job. They've got to be people who we, I mean, if she was a Republican, and was spouting off about you know, uh, you know, being being anti-choice or you know mm-hmm. doing all the usual stuff that Republicans say. You know, I wouldn't have been impressed with her either. But just you know, that symbolic moment of seeing that woman standing up there in front of that big crowd with authority, I think, was a big thing, and how, it certainly meant something. Uh, to me. How how important? Before we move on to the specifics of what she actually had to say, and and how you know what effect that may have had on both. Uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, who she uh, still needs to reach out to, Republican, uh, disaffected Republicans, who I know she's still trying to reach out to. Uh, Before we quickly move on to that, how how important for those of us, uh, you know, like me, just too young to remember it, how important was Clinton's statement back in, what, the 90s, 98, I think it was, at the uh, or 96, at the U.N. Women's Conference in Beijing, when she stood up and said uh, what, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights, and it was something that in China uh, people were warning her against saying. Is that something that you remember, uh, Heather, as, you know, as meaningful on both a political level and, uh, and as a woman, well, you bet I do, and I remember it very clearly. Um, you know, it was one. It was during that, you know, weird churning period after the '96 election when all kinds of stuff was happening. I think it was before the Lewinsky thing, but there was mm-hmm. all kinds of, you know, the usual, you know, right wing scandal mongering craziness. And she went over and did this thing. And you know, when she came in, I mean, this is one of the things that's most curious about Clinton. And in fact. Michelle Goldberg wrote an interesting article about, you know, why do people hate Hillary? And she interviewed a bunch of people who hate her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reasons go- are all over the place. You know, there's nothing consistent about it. Back in those days, she was considered this, you know, feminist harpy, you know, so far to the left that she was dragging poor old Bill into mm-hmm. into all his, you know, horrible policies, be- horrible left-wing policies, you know, because she was such a, you know, hardcore Sololinsky you know, radical, which now, of course, it's the total opposite. But that particular speech, for me, I remember hearing about it. I don't think I heard the actual speech until it was, you know, replayed. I don't recall hearing it in real time. Mm -hmm. But reading about it and thinking to myself, oh, my God, that you have to actually say that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that this is something that is not so... I mean, it's only half the population uh, of the planet, you know, and everybody's got mothers and everybody's got sisters and, you know, daughters and, you know, girlfriends and wives. And, oh, my God, you have to actually state categorically that that women's <laughs> that women are human, essentially. <laughs> it, it, well, and it, I'm going, we I, people now. were shocked by it yes. and, and, and angry about it. I mean, the right wing was absolutely livid how awful that she would go do that. 
and it was one of those things that proved what a hardcore, I can't remember what they used to call her, hardcore feminist, hard left feminist, something like that. And it was like radical. it was an epithet. Yeah, a radical feminist. Um, you know, it was, it, was a, they, it was an epithet. You know, this was, she was considered to have done something really out of line. And this was, this was you know, and which is just, even at the time, I'm going, you've got to be kidding me, yeah. you know. Well, it was a it was a huge thing at the time, and I mention it because I think there's a lot of people now, a lot of voters now, a lot of uh, young Bernie Sanders supporters now who really have no sense of that. Uh, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean they're just younger; they don't remember sure. it. And uh, you know, it, it is notable, and it is an important part of her record. And even at the time, there was folks on the left who were saying, "Don't do this; it's a oh, bad yeah. political idea." And she did do it anyway. So that just needs to be in in the stew, I think, for people as they're you know considering, particularly the Bernie Sanders uh, folks, as they consider what to do in the next hundred days, how to cast their vote, if to cast their vote. Uh, now, a big trick of the week for the Democrats, obviously, was trying to reach out to those Sanders supporters and a very divided party. Uh, well, I don't want to say a very divided party, a divided party. We'll see how divided it, it, it turns out to be. But it, it, there was a rocky start to the week with the DNC email leaks and uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, head of the DNC, resigning in its wake. Uh, but a lot of the speakers throughout the week, it seemed to me, including Obama and Biden and, and vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine, tried to reach out to the Sanders folks, including Hillary Clinton herself during her acceptance speech uh, on Thursday night. Let me play a clip of that uh, of that reach out, uh, that reach around, if you will, to, uh, to Bernie Sanders folks. Go ahead. I want to thank Bernie Sanders. Bernie. Bernie, your campaign inspired millions of Americans particularly the young people who threw their hearts and souls into our primary. You've put economic and social justice issues front and center where they belong. And to all of your supporters here and around the country, I want you to know, I've heard you. Your cause is our cause. Our country needs your ideas, energy, and passion. That is the only way we can turn our progressive platform into real change for America. We wrote it together, now let's go out and make it happen together. Now, I often talk about uh, the difference between uh, skepticism, which is good, and cynicism, which is not quite as good. And so I, I, I point to uh, Hillary's uh, comments there and, and throughout the speech about the specifics uh, that come from that platform that she and the Sanders folks uh, put together. She did not have to cite the platform that is not necessarily something that is you know has to move forward the republican platform they crafted is totally separate from anything that donald trump says he believes in but she laid down that marker for that platform for a lot of other progressive programs that uh, have come out of the bernie sanders uh, campaign so I'm you know, skeptical about her getting it done, but uh, the cynicism that I hear from people, she did not need to talk about that platform. That is now something 
that she can be held to because uh, she brought it up time and time again in the speech. She brought it up, uh, you know, all of those progressive policies. If she's elected, she's got a reelection in four years that Dems uh, can now use this against her. So did that work, uh, Heather, at least enough for the uh, Democrats to accomplish what they needed to in, in shoring up the base? Or have be- people become so cynical now that they'll say, ah, yeah, whatever. She'll, she's just saying what she needs to say at this point to get elected. I think there are probably a few people for whom that will not be adequate, you know, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they, they're not going to buy into that. And, and, you know, that's fine. But I actually think that, that, and it wasn't just her, although, as you say, she did not have to, you know, embrace the party platform in such detail in that big speech uh, the way that she did. Very easy to elide that and just sort of talk in broader terms Mm -hmm. and more, you know, broader principles and whatever. But she was very specific about it. Um, And it wasn't just her, though. I mean, Barack Obama, as you say, Biden, uh, you know, Tim Kaine, uh, Michelle Obama, everybody who spoke... Uh, all of the key, you know, the headliners um, mentioned the the Sanders campaign, extolled them for what they did, gave them a lot of of credit, and and were you know very. I felt very generously, you know, in in inviting uh, to mm-hmm. to that group, and I suspect that it worked on many people, at least those at home. You know, I know in the hall. There was probably there was a different atmosphere, but if you were, I mean, I, I assume you guys watched it at home. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, and what I saw on television was actually, you know, it started off, as you say, as a rocky uh, sort of beginning with the Debbie Wasserman Schultz thing, all that, which I actually think was good. I mean, they didn't plan it, of course, but mm-hmm. but the fact that it sort of uh, it allowed that that you know that voice to be heard, it allowed people to kind of be able to get off some steam about this. And uh, it was you know, a success. It was a success for the Bernie Sanders uh, supporters. It was. They ended up, and you know, they I mean, won. It, and it was. And deserved. I mean, you know, what, what was revealed yeah. in those emails was, was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was terrible the head of the DNC. Mm-hmm. Much of the, the, the reporting that came after that showed that it wasn't, it's not just the Bernie Sanders people who were dissatisfied. Most of the political establishment in the, de- in the Democratic Party was, mm-hmm. was dissatisfied. Obama didn't want to take, he just didn't want to make the step of having to fire her in mm-hmm. his last year because it would have caused a lot of, you know, he was, he just didn't want to for whatever reason, not because he loved her by any means, but just he just didn't want to do that. So, you know, it was it was time. She had to go it, well overdue, everything that came out in that. And, and I, I felt like that was a deserved response on the part of the DNC. And I felt like the, the Bernie people and Bernie himself, who has to get a lot of credit for handling it the way that he did. I thought it was very deft, the yeah. way that he did deal with that. So, you know, the convention... Throughout, I think was was tr- was trying to be embracing of of Bernie Sanders, and I think that they did a good job. I think most people will buy into it, but there was a bigger thing going on there too. It wasn't just that. I think it started off, you know, with the Rocky D- Debbie Wasserman Schultz business, and then the first night of the convention, which of course featured the big speech by Bernie at the end, M- Michelle Obama and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, these were big speeches, and they were very important, and they were. Har- particularly Warren and, and Sanders, 
hardcore progressive speeches. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, I believe, that the, the party itself, the Clinton campaign specifically, was trying to say, hey, look, this is part of our thing. You know, they didn't they didn't have to make it. They could have spread it out. You know what I mean? They could have put sure. Elizabeth Warren on another night. They could have put, you know, whatever. They wanted to make it very clear that this progressive movement that, that uh, Sanders had revealed, I, I don't honestly believe he created it. I think it was already there waiting mm-hmm. to be uh, revealed uh, to the to the party. Um, he was just the, the voice that made it, you know, come mm-hmm. together in a way that everybody could hear it. And pr- presidential campaigns are good for that. Um, but, you know, that, that was a very important thing. Then beyond that, they started to try, and this, I, th- I, thought, I thought it was really well done, um, you know, in, in increments, start to reach into the, you know, the, the more moderate Democrats, then the moderate Republicans, the suburban, you know, Republicans who were disaffected by Trump, going on and on and on. And then at the end... After they had done that, they're inviting everybody, right? They're saying, look, mm-hmm. we, want, we are progressives, and you are the core of our party. Now, we also have room for you. We have room for you. We have room for you. And then Clinton, at the end, by embracing the platform the way she did, having put the Democratic Party at the center of American politics, she has now said, that's the center. That progressive platform mm-hmm. is where the center of America is. She- that's the mainstream. And Going forward... That is the mainstream philosophy of America. And I think that was a bold step for her to make, and I felt like it could end up being important because this election may just finish off a realignment that's been in the making for a long time, in which college-educated white voters who have traditionally always voted, a majority always voted for Republicans, they are now in a position of coming over the same way that the Reagan Democrats moved to the Republican Party. And, and uh, that could be very, very substantially different. By the way, many of those people are older, and uh, they might even vote in a midterm. So, you know. Here was, here was yeah, here was that reach out to a lot of uh, those people. And as you say, Heather Digby, Barton, that marker that, uh, you know, is laid down that here, this is the new center. Uh, when she reached out to folks saying, uh, join us, and she named things like, unfair trade deals, uh, affordable health care for all. Let me play just a quick clip from that, and then we'll get your thoughts. Whatever party you belong to, or if you belong to no party at all, if you share these beliefs, this is your campaign. If you believe that companies should share profits, not pad executive bonuses, join us. If you believe The minimum wage should be a living wage, and no one working full-time should have to raise their children in poverty. Join us! If you believe that every man, woman, and child in America has the right to affordable health care, join us! If you believe that we should say no to unfair trade deals, that we should stand up to China, that we should support our steel workers and auto workers and homegrown manufacturers, then join us. If you believe we should expand Social Security and protect a woman's right to make her own health care decision, then join us. Yes, if you believe that your working mother, wife, sister, or daughter deserves equal pay, join us. 
Now, Bernie Sanders could have said those exact words, frankly, in a, in an acceptance speech, and his supporters would have gone wild. Uh, hearing it from Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, you kind of look and you say, well, how much of this is politics? But when you say specific, when you offer specifics like that, I think in a speech like that, it is something that she can be uh, that she can be held to and that she will be held to if, in fact, uh, she's elected. Let, let me take a quick break. I got to get a quick break. And I want to come back with what with what I think was one of the most effective moments uh, of the entire week. Uh, we're speaking with Heather Digby Parton of Salon and with Desi Doyen of the Bradcast. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. After an historic week in Philadelphia at the Democratic National Convention and the nomination of Hillary Clinton by the Democrats for uh, for President of the United States. I'm speaking with Heather Digby-Parton of Salon, and I want to get into uh, where we are in this matchup against Donald Trump, between Hillary and Trump. But before we do, I think, for my money, one of the most amazing uh, moments of the Democratic Convention all week was when Kazir Khan, the father of a, of, of a young man who was killed in, I believe it was Iraq, Desi Doyen? Yes. Uh, was killed in Iraq, uh, who had uh, stepped in front of essentially a car bomb, saving the lives of a bunch of uh, his fellow U.S. troops. Um, he is a Muslim American. His father and his mother in full hijab, hijab garb yep. uh, spoke. The father spoke. Uh, we've, we've condensed the, the time, the pauses in his remarks because uh, the, the applause went on and on here. But it was really an amazing takedown, I thought, of so much of what Donald Trump stands for. Uh, let me let me just play this. This is Kazir Khan, uh, the father of this uh, soldier killed in Iraq. Donald Trump. You're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? I will, I will gladly lend you my copy in this document. Look for the words, look for the words liberty and equal protection of law. Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of brave patriots who died defending United States of America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing 
and no one. We cannot solve. We cannot solve our problems by building walls. This is a historic election, and I request to honor the sacrifice of my son. And on election day, take the time to get out and vote, and vote for the healer, vote for the strongest, most qualified candidate, Hillary Clinton, not the divider. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, Digby, your thoughts on Kazir Khan's remarks? Well, uh, for me, personally, it was the most powerful speech of the, of the convention. Mm. I mean, there were a lot of great orators and a lot of great speakers and many people who, who actually broke my heart. The mothers of the movement were amazing. The woman who lost her child in Orlando, um, in the Orlando massacre, was, was amazing. And there, there was a lot of heartfelt testimony at the uh, at the convention but this one was the 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 amazing dignity and courage of that man and the and the indignation of that man that his son's um, sacrifice and his own sacrifice was being devalued by Donald Trump was just so incredibly powerful i read an interesting thing online that um, right after his speech that uh, Google showed tremendous spikes in how do I register to vote yes. on Google. Yes, um, You yeah, know, I, I mean, that's that the too. kind of thing that, tell, that makes you go, you know, wait a minute. And I think that it underscored one of the great themes of the convention, one that, you know, has, uh, you know, many dimensions, um, which is that, you know, they, the, the demo- democratic patriotism, or pa- American patriotism, excuse me, um, is not about you know flag waving. D- patriotism is about this greater idea of the you know a, a country full of peoples from everywhere contributing to this one you know our, our common wheel. Um, and I think that that was the idea that was sort of the underpinning there, in direct contrast to the dystopian hellscape. <laughs> Uh, return to antebellum America or whatever it was that Donald Trump was trying to do. Um, yeah. This this was a very different version of what American love of country. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it than patriotism. That you know, loving your country is about a whole different set of values than what those people were selling. And you know, you could tell that it hit home because of all the Republicans who were so mad and so upset yeah. and so depressed writing tweets and essays about how they stole our ideas, they took them. Well, actually, that's not <laughs> true. Those ideas belong to every American. Exactly. It's just that Republicans have made it impossible for, for you know, anyone but them to be able to use it as some kind of an advertising brand. Well, you know, Trump has taken that and thrown it in the garbage. And so now uh, people are able to see a different version of what American love of country might mean. And I don't mean that in a jingoistic way yeah. or any kind of you know, militarism or any of that. I'm just talking about the, the basic idea that I think most of us of all political stripes sort of feel, that the idea underlying the, you know, and they use the founders too, which was a big thing, the idea underlying our, our country 
was always this idea that we could, you know, we were self-governing. We could make, and Obama did a mm-hmm. good job with that, too. He said, we do not want to be ruled. That one kind of sent a shiver down my spine. I'm going, whoa, you know, that is really getting down to basics. And and I, I felt like that was the underlying story. And this man was, at, and his wife, these two mm-hmm. uh, amazing Americans who had immigrated from another country and whose son gave his life, uh, defending America, that you know, or I shouldn't say defending America uh, in uniform, mm-hmm. and 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 basically uh, was was killed in the name of America. Um, that those people stood up there and uh, and you know, <laughs> were it took it right to Donald Trump, went right in his face and said, "You want to ban people like me? Really? You know, this and is what you want to do?" No more powerful statement. And and yeah. and there was uh, uh, that patriotism you talk about um, the the Democratic brand of it. Uh, there was, in addition to that, a lot of flag waving, in fact, mm-hmm. and a lot of chanting USA, USA. Now, to me, and a lot of militarism at times, and to me, uh, I find that distasteful, frankly. But on a political level, the fact that they were able to take that away from the Republicans who really didn't talk about veterans, about the military, uh, hell, even about God, you know, who Republicans have thought they owned up until now, the, the fact that they did not do that at their convention and the Democrats did, just on a political level, that's really smart. Whether you like it or not, you know, it's just smart politics. Uh, let me, I got just time for one more segment here before I got to let you go, uh, Heather. Uh, this was uh, Hillary <laughs> and uh, I guess previewing the uh, the Twitter election we are, uh, we will now be holding between now and November. So just ask yourself. Do you really think Donald Trump has the temperament to be commander-in-chief? Donald Trump can't even handle the rough and tumble of a presidential campaign. He loses his cool at the slightest provocation. Imagine him in the Oval Office facing a real crisis. A man you can bait with a tweet is not a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. So, uh, Heather uh, and Desi, uh, very quickly, we've got just a minute or two here. Will this full frontal attack, uh, you know, against Trump by Hillary Clinton, will it work? Can she stand up against uh, Trump in the debates? Uh, You know, who is likely to use all sorts of, you know, jujitsu, which have nothing to do with policy to throw her off. Uh, You know, can can she stand up to it? Will this uh, be an effective strategy to take him on in this way, Heather? Well, I think she has to. Um, and and how she does it, uh, I think, you know, remains to be seen. But I think saying that, I, I read a, a report by Celinda Lake, the pollster, mm-hmm. and they have found that people, uh, the the thing that scares people most, that that gets them the most when they when they think about Donald Trump, is the idea of him uh, being uh, commander in chief and having control of the nuclear arsenal. Um, that uh, it seems to me that what they're trying to do with that, a man who can be baited, you know, with a tweet, it's the idea that this guy's a hothead that you can't trust to be deliberate and careful and uh, listen to advisors. And do, I mean, he's proving over and over again um, 
so mm-hmm. that he is not that kind of a person. So, you know, I think that that's the point that they're trying to make. I also think, just to, to hit back, a li- not hit back, but go back to your previous um, comment about the flag-waving, which I think most of us per- anti-war progressives are uncomfortable with, I think part of that has to do with the uh, trying to... to inoculate a little bit against the the fact that there could very well be some kind of a a major terrorist attack between now and November, and the idea that they're trying to, you know, set the, you know, set the table for them to be uh, seen as a strong, Mm -hmm. you know, party to do that. I mean, it seems to me like it, it, it sort of made sense considering current events and how things have been unfolding the last few months that the one thing they don't want is for Donald Trump to be this big man on a white horse who's going to save us if something, if, you know, if a, if, if a terrorist attack of that kind should happen, that, you know, you don't want that event to be completely unaddressed. Uh, yeah. Indeed. If it does, all bets are off. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say really quick that I don't think anything she says will work on hardcore right-wingers, maybe the middle, the independents, yeah. some of them will be convinced. But I just, I love the fact that the woman nominee was the one who argued that her male opponent is the the one who's going to be hysterical, irrational, and <laughs> unstable. In, 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 <laughs> indeed. Uh, and uh, we'll also have to talk about what color his pantsuit is yeah, next no time kidding. we talk about it. When can it? we talk about Donald Trump's, you know, various physical uh, anomalies? Oh, we got we got 100 days to do exactly that. <laughs> Heather Digby-Parton, always great to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much you for, for, for joining me, us. Thank you for having guys. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope you get a few days off after these uh, hellish I'm couple go of weeks. The Good. Enjoy <laughs> it. We'll talk to you soon. Heather Digby-Parton of Salon and of Digby's Hullabaloo, which you can find at digbysblog.blogspot.com and also harass her on the Twitters <laughs> at Digby56. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. And thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, including the top of the show and the huge news, that the uh, North Carolina, the mother of all voter suppression laws, has now been struck down in pretty much in full by the Fourth Circuit of Appellate Court, the U.S. Federal Court there. Uh, if you missed any of that huge news, go back and download our show at bradblog.com, where you can get all of them for free at any time. You can also get them over at iTunes. My thanks as well to our producer, Desi Doyen, for a hell of a two weeks covering these conventions. Thank you, Desi. And, of course, to my guest, Heather Digby-Parton. You can send me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can reach me and harass me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. Man, could I use some rest. Uh, until we get that, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.